So I was reading an article this week, um, and the author says this, from the pew, here's what I want to yell at every preacher in the pulpit. You have no idea of the spiritual hunger out there. Almost every sermon is a missed opportunity, according to this commentator. He says, when you look out into your congregation, no matter how small, if there is anyone between the ages of 18 to 55 out there, you need to imagine what they did to get to the pew that day. They fought the pressures of their work schedule, which for most of them is out of their control. They pushed back against the busyness of their children's schedules or your own schedules. Perhaps their family had an argument that very afternoon about whether to go to church or to make the drive to visit grandma, or in our case, to stay home and watch the game, to go to the beach, to play with the kids, to write the paper, to get a pizza, to take a nap, or maybe even they considered going somewhere else in the morning so that their evening would be free. He continues, and this is just a normal week, not to mention the ones where a job was lost, a friend imperiled, a roof leaked, a spouse hit bottom, a child pulled away, a parent fell ill, an injustice unrectified, a mortgage passed due, a dream crushed, a business shuttered. This is not to mention the solitary soul that for indescribable reasons just decided today, after many years, to walk back through those doors and slip into the back pew a still small voice calling, a spirit welling up to new life within, waiting, hanging on every word from the pulpit, aching for a breath. And here we are, studying the Nicene Creed. I want it to be known that it is not lost on us, the amount of weight that you guys bring into this space each and every week. And perhaps for some of you, it does take a lot to get off the couch, into your car, to drive here and to walk through these doors for whatever reason that might be. And we just want to pause for a moment and first of all say thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting us in this time to be your community for the next 30 minutes or so and hopefully to be a people who can share grace and hope and peace and love in the midst of the busyness and in the midst of the suffering and in the midst of the difficulties that are sometimes called life. We have been looking at an old creed that was written in the fourth century that was written for the express purpose of trying to identify what it is that marks off the Christian community. Those core theological beliefs that the Christian community has held now for centuries. And we've, we've come at this from a couple of different ways. The way that I'm kind of going into it is these are the things that unite us together in a world that is terribly, terribly, terribly divided. Don't get me started on the political atmosphere of our time. But in a world that is very divided, politically, theologically, just in, in life in general, these are the moments and these are the things of which we can say together as a community, we believe. Those first two words of this creed are so important for me and hopefully for us where we can put all of our differences aside and find the unity through Jesus, through his cross and through the empty tomb and through the Savior that we worship and dedicate our lives to serving. I also do hope, though, that this is not just a rallying call for unity, but in the midst of this, we also see the things that will get us through the busyness of life and the grief that we share and the moments that might hurt a bit. Today in particular, I believe that this section of the creed is laced with 
hope. In fact, this is the basis of all the hope that we have as believers. Last week, we spent a little bit of time thinking about Jesus, specifically his uh, sacrifice for us on the cross. This is what we refer to as the atonement, the at-one-ment, where at one point we were far away, but God has brought us close to himself. It says he was crucified for us. This is Jesus was crucified for us, and we spent a little bit of time thinking about what those two words for us meant and how we can go through Scripture and find the many metaphors of the significance of Jesus' death for us on our behalf. He was the sacrifice. He was the payment. He was the liberator. He was the one who brought wholeness. He was the one who brings peace. There's so many different passages within Scripture that talk about Jesus in this way. Perhaps my most favorite is Jesus as the victor, the one that has completely silenced and destroyed, in a sense, evil and sin and death. Regardless of the things that we have thrown at him, the sin that we have brought to the table, he has absorbed that for the sake of ongoing relationship with us. He was crucified for us and for our salvation under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. There's one pastor who has this really famous sermon where he talks about Friday is here, but Sunday's a coming. And the Friday in this idea is the Good Friday, the day of suffering, where we can enter into that moment as well when the things that we go through in life don't necessarily add up or they don't work themselves out in the way that we have thought about them. And there's many of us that can identify with with that. Perhaps it is miscarriage. Perhaps it is infertility. Perhaps it is a um, relationship issue or a job loss or financial issues. But we can understand the pain in some sense of, of the Good Friday. But the hope is Sunday is a coming. So we wanted to take a little bit of time last week and, and sit within that moment of life which we all have, have gone through, understanding that Jesus identifies with us. That's the bigger issue, isn't it? Not just that we can understand what he's going through because that kind of pales in comparison, but he can understand and identify with us in the midst of loss and in the midst of persecution and suffering and systemic political oppression. He understands what it is that we go through. And now the beautiful part of this, Friday's here, but Sunday is a coming. The third day, it says, Jesus rose again according to the scriptures. One scholar says, if the death of Christ wipes away sin, the resurrection of Christ makes all things new. Resurrection is about new creation, a theory of atonement, again, that at one minute where we were once far away, but God has brought us close to himself. A theory of atonement that does not flow into the resurrection is an atonement that rids one of the sin problem, but does not transform life and this world. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are the core theological tenets. And we can nerd out a bit, and we'll talk about some of this stuff in its ancient Near Eastern and its first century Judaic culture, but we will also hopefully bring home the point that this is for us and for our salvation. And if this does not hit us where we are sitting, whatever we have brought with us into this space, then we are not understanding the scriptures and we are not hearing the Spirit correctly. So tonight we're going to move from thinking about the death of Jesus and go into this act of new creation, this initiation of what God has been meaning for all of time, the restoration of his world and his people. And we are going to think about this through the lens, first of all, through resurrection within the ancient Near East. Now this might throw you for a loop, okay? 
The big fancy terms that people use are progressive revelation. People way back when did not know everything that we know now, even people within the Bible. So the idea of resurrection is not something that people knew way back when. This was not really an Abraham sort of thing or a Moses sort of thing or even a David sort of thing. Resurrection was an idea that was going throughout time and evolving over time, and it came into its prominence late in the game. It came into its prominence in what is called the Second Temple Period. You guys remember David. David had a kid named Solomon. Solomon was kind of a mess, but he did build the temple. It was great. It was extravagant. It was beautiful. He got all this imported wood, supposedly, and he got all this stuff to build this extravagant temple, which was the place where God dwelled in their mind, the ancient Jewish mind. However, because of Israel's sinfulness, that temple was destroyed around 586 or so B.C., but it was rebuilt I believe in the 530s or so, 515, maybe somewhere in that region. And it was then ushering in not the first temple period, but the second temple period because it was Israel's second temple. Sad news, that one was destroyed in 70 AD. So there's this um, time in which Israel was worshiping at the second temple. And some people refer to this as a moment in time where you can think about their belief system at this point. And the resurrection did not really come into prominence until that moment. I'm going to read you something that's going to be really, really weird, okay? Can you handle it? This is from the book of 2 Maccabees. This is specifically chapter 7, okay? Um, we'll put a PG-13 rating on this, all right? But this will show you the development of the idea of resurrection, okay? It says, there were also seven brothers who were arrested. Okay, I should back up here a little bit. Sorry. Second Maccabees is not part of the Christian Bible. It's part of the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books. Fancy term there for something that's kind of important, but not really inspired scripture. But it does give us good history, and it allows us to see what people believed in what is called the intertestamental period. So not the Old Testament and not the New Testament, but the time in between. You guys understand all the good bits of information you are getting tonight. Okay, this is 2 Maccabees chapter 7. There were also seven brothers who were arrested along with their mother. The king was trying to compel them to eat the forbidden pork by torturing them with whips and cords. One of them, speaking on behalf of the others, said, What do you hope to ask and learn from us? We are prepared to die rather than sin against our ancestral laws. Israel at this time had food laws, which they were not allowed to eat certain foods, and that was to identify them uh, in contrast with other peoples. The king, it says, became angry and commanded frying pans and cauldrons to be heated. You don't like where this story is going. As soon as they were hot, he commanded that the one acting as a spokesman have his tongue cut out, be scalped, and have his hands and feet cut off while the rest of his brothers and his mother watched. After the brother was maimed and utterly helpless, the king commanded him to be brought to the fire and fried alive. Although the smoke from the pan had spread widely, the brothers and their mother encouraged each other to die honorably, saying, the Lord God truly watches over us and will come to our aid. Moses testified to this in his song against them, saying, God will have compassion on his servant. You guys understand what's happening here. 
This guy's hands and his feet are cut off. They're going to put him in a giant frying pan. This is not something of which you can be bored as you sit here. These are, this is a crazy moment in time. And they're standing there saying, no, we will die with honor and we will not succumb to the pressures of this political regime and we will not go against the teaching and the law of our God. Continues, and I'll, I'll get to the, the important bit. After the first brother died in this manner, they led forward the second one with mockery. They ripped off the skin of his head along with the hair and demanded, will you eat before every part of your body is punished limb by limb? But he answered in his native language, not at all. Therefore, this brother also received in turn the same punishment as the first. With his last breath, he said, you who are marked out for vengeance may take our present life, but the king of the universe for whose laws we die will resurrect us again to eternal life. That story goes on. All seven of the brothers um, and the mother, if, if memory serves correctly, they end up dying. This is a pretty gruesome text, but they all remain faithful to the laws of God. But that key there where he says, you can take our earthly bodies, but we will rise again. This is in a hundred or so BC, and this is a developed idea that has, has come about over time as people begin to understand the revelation of God that has progressed over time. Okay, so even within the ancient Near East, resurrection was not a thing. This is going to be important for us because as we get to resurrection in the first century, people have started to really adopt this idea that God's covenant is so great and his love for us is so strong that not even death can separate us from God. This is a radical point in theology. Jesus is going to blow it up a bit, but this is, this is how people were beginning to think that God's covenant was so great that there's nothing that could stop him from maintaining the relationship that he has with his people, not even death. Now, not everyone in this time believed in resurrection. For the churched folks, you might be able to guess the uh, religious elite of the time who did not believe in resurrection when Jesus was coming around. It was the Sadducees. Remember this one story, Mark chapter 12, it says, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, they approach Jesus with a question and they create this crazy narrative about the man and the woman and they're married and then the, the husband dies and then because of Jewish law, the husband's brother must impregnate the woman and so on and so forth. And by the end of this crazy story, she's got seven husbands and the Sadducees kind of gotcha question is, all right, Jesus, who will this woman be married to in the age to come because resurrection is so stupid? So they're trying to poke holes in this theory, right? But for the most part, Jewish people of this time in Jesus' day, they believed in the resurrection, okay? And we can see this in the story of Lazarus. And when he dies, Jesus goes to talk to Mary and Martha, his sisters. And we have this interchange with Jesus and Martha, and Martha's like, Jesus, if you were here, you could have raised him from the dead. And Jesus begins to prod and, and poke and, and push her a little bit. And she has this line that demonstrates the belief system in which she was and the majority of Jewish people at the time. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm wishing that you had been here to not have him die. So Martha is saying, along with most of the Jews at this time, that there is a resurrection that is to come at some point in history, okay? Now, this is how the, the Jews in the first century would think about 
the timeline of human history. We are currently, in, in, for Bible folks, in this age, and at some point there will be an age to come. At some point, God's Messiah, his anointed, the one who would show up and rid the world of Roman oppression and uh, allow us to be free, that person would show up and, and allow God's kingdom to come to fruition. They were expecting this to take place through a military victory, and there would be an identifiable moment in time when the, the end of the age would show up and the age to come would be ushered in and resurrection would happen. N.T. Wright says the crucifixion of Jesus was the end of all Jesus' followers' hopes. Nobody dreamed of saying, oh, that's all right, he'll be back in a few days. When Jesus was crucified, every single disciple knew what it meant. It meant that we backed the wrong horse. This is something as Christians that we don't usually see because we know the end of the story. But as Jesus dies on the cross, Everything comes crumbling down for these people because their idea of resurrection and their idea of what's to come did not include the death of their man, Jesus. It wasn't something that was on the periphery of things that they were looking to see happen. Even though Jesus kept saying, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised, the kingdom will be established They didn't understand, and even when Jesus keeps saying that, there are these moments where the disciples demonstrate themselves to be folks who just completely do not understand what is going on. The fact that Jesus' death had, in a sense, let people down is demonstrated in this passage in Luke 24. This is after the resurrection, and Jesus is walking with these two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they're retelling the story of what's been happening. They said, we've been talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, with the implication is he can't be because he died. We had hoped that he would be this, but the way that his life worked out destroyed that idea for these people. Jesus did not bring in the age to come, according to most people, from that Friday to that Sunday, because they couldn't understand what it is that he was doing, and it did not fit into their box. Now, if anybody has spent any amount of time with me, you have seen this picture before. It is called Inaugurated Eschatology. And this is like the bread and butter of Christian theology. Are you sensing my excitement? Sweet. What Jesus does is so great because through his death and his resurrection, he inaugurates the end. He brings about the age to come. He allows, in a sense, heaven to come to earth in some small way. And we begin to see the picture of that because Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And that changes everything. It brings about the age to come for us. And you can see here that there's a moment in time where Jesus allows this to show up and it becomes this hybrid sort of moment. Yeah, we still grieve. Yeah, we still experience loss. Yes, we still lose people to cancer. Yes, we still have broken relationships. Yes, we still go through bouts of unemployment and financial insecurity. Yes, there's things in our life that are hard and difficult. However, Jesus is Lord, and he is bringing about 
pieces of heaven to earth and the age to come here and now. And yes, there will be a moment when resurrection happens and we wait and we hope for that. Resurrection, because of Jesus, is is shown to be a two-stage event which no one was thinking would happen. And the way Paul talks about this is Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Again, everyone at this point was thinking when resurrection happened, it would be everyone who was a follower of Yahweh would experience resurrection at the same time. But Jesus, through his death and being raised, he shatters that. And the implications of that for us are massive. Okay, now I want to hit you with some stuff that's gonna, you might want to glaze over, but do not. This is Paul. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a tough passage, but this is the passage for resurrection and understanding what's going on here. And once we get this, we will get to why this is so important for us today. Okay, stick with me. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Sometimes when you're reading Paul, you're like, bro, what are you saying? Okay, I'm going to try to break this down for you. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, this is classic first century rhetoric, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. If Jesus, summary statement, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then this is a bunch of malarkey. I don't think Paul would have said that because I'm not sure if malarkey was a term back then, but what he keeps piling on is Jesus's resurrection is the linchpin for everything else that we believe as Christians. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's code word for the people that have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, this is where I want us to focus. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, the one who has experienced this, even when people at the time were not expecting that to be a thing. Then, when Jesus shows back up, those who belong to him will also be raised bodily, resurrected, to be with Jesus forever. This idea of resurrection as a two-stage event was not something that people were were thinking would happen, but Jesus in his resurrection kind of blows us up and, and gives us something to think through, and it has implications for us when we're thinking about after we die. I was talking to Kate in the car the other day, and I said, what do you think happens to us when we die? It was one of those moments where it's like, you know, we've been in church for our whole lives, and we're just thinking through this stuff, and we just pause, and we ask a huge question. And there's differences of opinion on this. But I think for most people in America, what we are expecting, what we are anticipating is to be with Jesus 
which for us happens as soon as we die. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's also this text in John that talks about um, Jesus preparing a house for us. It's interesting that N.T. Wright makes the point that the Greek word that's used there is monē, and it's usually uh, one of a temporary place of shelter. So here we see Jesus' death and resurrection and all of us occupying this space. And when we die, we are still waiting for the resurrection to take place. When we think about what we're waiting for and what is our hope, I think many of us have missed the significance of what we as a people are waiting for, which is future bodily resurrection because Jesus has been raised from the dead. This is Paul's huge point If that hasn't happened, it's all just a bunch of junk. It doesn't even matter. But what Jesus does on that Sunday is he initiates new creation. And he says the old is gone and the new has come. And I'm about a work that will transform everything. And you get to be a part of it. What we are waiting for, this is N.T. Wright's phrase here. We are waiting for life after life after death. Whatever it is that happens to us, if I was to die right here and now, which would be a pretty crazy church service, I think. Somebody help me. We've got some medical professionals in here. That's good. But if I was to die right now, I would be present with the Lord according to most people's understanding of the Bible. But I would still be awaiting future bodily resurrection when King Jesus descends, whatever that looks like, and says, I am fulfilling this kingdom that I have started so many years ago. The things that I demonstrated in coming back to life and the new creation that was initiated, I'm going to bring that to fulfillment so much so that I'm going to reconstitute Josh's body and he will be with me forever. Not in this disembodied state where I'm kind of floating around and hanging out, but where I am actually in a transformed, glorified body because Jesus has demonstrated that way back when. Resurrection as a two-stage event, yeah, it helps us to rethink perhaps what it is that we're waiting for, but it also has implications for us right now. And if you haven't heard much of what I'm saying, because I know that uh, sometimes when you get, get into something, you start telling a joke, you're like, man, this one isn't going to land too well. That was kind of like this sermon. <laughs> you just get into it, you're like, man, this is pretty deep, pretty heady. I just don't know how it's going to land, which is sad because when we think about the resurrection of Jesus, that is everything for our faith. Everything that we're hoping for hinges upon this, but it has great implications for us here and now, even if you can't wrap your head around, okay, so what's going to happen to me when I die, and what is it that I'm waiting for? Jesus initiates new creation in his resurrection when he puts death to death, so to speak, when he conquers sin and evil. When he shows himself to be powerful over that, it has implications for us right now. N.T. Wright says, people who believe in the resurrection, in a God making a whole new world in which everything will be set right at last, are unstoppably motivated to work for that new world in the present. When Jesus showed up, when Jesus conquered death, when Jesus rose from the grave, when the people went to the tomb, they said, he's not here, he's risen. It changed everything. And what happens, what's so significant about that is not what happens to us when we die, but what happens to us here and now once we have accepted Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. It means that we become an unstoppable force to bring about new creation here and now where we see the wrongs in the world and we right them. 
when we see the, the relationships that are broken and we step in and we try to mend them, when we see poverty or brokenness or whatever and we try to fix that, not because we want to be good or because we want to earn our salvation by works, but because that's the stuff that Jesus would want us to do. When the world is wrong, he invites us in to right it. So we talk about building for the kingdom because of the resurrection. This looks like a few different things. When we build for the kingdom, we become agents of justice, not because it's cool and it's hip and it's trendy and people with the tightest jeans of all time like to go dig wells somewhere. It's because Jesus and his resurrection has brought in new creation. And the fact that people don't have clean drinking water, I don't care what kind of jeans you wear, it's not right. And we then should be motivated to go and do something about it because that's the type of work that Jesus is about. When we see people being ripped off or people being racially profiled or people being the objects of prejudice and uh, systemic racism, when we see these things in our, in our society, when we see sexism and we see greed and we see pride, we see those things, we begin to be motivated as an unstoppable force to step in and do something about it because that is what Jesus has initiated through his death and his resurrection. It's new creation. And if we cannot be people who are passionate about that, then what are we doing? If we are simply solely motivated by where am I going to go when I die and how cool is my mansion going to be, then we have totally missed the gospel and we have totally misunderstood what Jesus is allowing us to be a part of. Justice is not just trendy and hip. Justice is the gospel. We also see this in creation care, another thing that people in tight pants like to talk about, and I might be one of them, because when I was a teacher at SCS, I remember I went on this big, uh, I don't know, self-righteous little talk about how recycling was really important, and I don't want to hear about recycling and the problems that they're in, but I remember like I would be standing next to the recycle bins, and people would come up, and they'd have their bottles, their little water bottles, and they'd look me right in the eye, and they'd put their bottle over the recycle bin, and then they'd throw it in the trash can jerks, you know, but you can't tell them that. Hopefully they'll grow out of it at some point, okay? But they knew what I would do is I would take the bottle out of the trash can and I would put it into the recycle bin. Flashback to me as a camp counselor when I'm 18 years old, the summer after I graduated high school, and my first day on the job, I'm at the YMCA, and there's a little kid named Judd, and I'm watching Judd. He's maybe seven years old. He sees a piece of dog poop on the ground. He puts it on a stick, and I say, quote, put that down, and he says, no. And I start running away from seven-year-old Judd with dog poop on a stick. Okay, that's just the type of authority that I command in a room, I guess. <laughs> but this idea of creation care, and it can be recycling or whatever. I've got this one crazy friend who, um, he has committed his family. And I, I'm not saying that this is where we need to go, but he has committed his family to uh, being cognizant of the waste that they make as a family. So you know those tall kitchen trash bags. His family fills up one of those every six to eight months, and that is their complete and total waste output. And we're sitting here thinking like, bro, that's me on a good afternoon, you know? But they're just committed to it. They don't order stuff online. When they go to the store, they buy in bulk. They've got their own containers. And the reason why they do this is because they believe that we have been entrusted with the care of this world not just because they want to be hip and they want to be trendy, but because they believe that this place 
is being redeemed. And Jesus started that process when he conquered death and when he bust out of the, the tomb. And he says, I'm making it all right. Do your part. So for them, that's, that's, what it, that's what it looks like. And I don't know what it looks like for you, and I don't know how to engage this sort of stuff with justice and, and creation care. Even when you think about art, the things that we create now are ongoing, and they have, in a sense, a life after us, and they are part of God's good redemption. This is why it saddens me that, that Christians, at least in the past, like the art that we have produced has usually been knockoffs. It hasn't been out on the forefront of creativity. Now, I, you could go back at different points in history and kind of poke holes in that, but it seems like, at least for me as a, as a person, the, the movies and the, the music and the stuff that I was invested in as a kid, it seemed to be like I would go into the Christian bookstore and it would say, if you like Creed, you'll like this band. Like, that's how it was marketed. Christian music as the lesser than version of this other thing that is real Art. But what this is, is calling us to is because of Jesus and because he has conquered the grave and because he has instituted new creation, we get to be a part of that in the things that we create. And just pause here for 20 seconds. There's some of you in the room right now. I don't know if it's writing. I don't know if it's painting. I don't know if it's sculpting. I don't know if it's building. I don't know what it is. But you are longing to be a creator. And I believe that that creative property that you have is emblematic and representative of the creator who created you. Live into that because it's part of your new identity in Jesus. Building for the kingdom also involves evangelism, and this is the last point. I think at times the church has minimized the significance of Jesus because what we have done is we have reduced him to a get-out-of-jail-free card. What we have reduced him to is, hey, there's this really cool thing that's going to happen to you when you die or when the resurrection happens. Like, you can just bank on that. And it hasn't necessarily been super invested in what happens to you right here and right now. And I hope that as we see this, when you start to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and when you start to see that new creation has begun, and when we get to understand that we are now a part of that, that changes everything. The things that you are about now should be the things that Jesus is about. The things that you are passionate for should be the things that Jesus also is passionate for. The transformation that takes place in our life so that we are conformed into the image of Jesus each and every day, that is the beautiful stuff that we are allowed to and privileged enough to invite people into. It is not just where are you going to go when you die. That is not good news. Good news is new creation is beginning and it's starting with you. You who once had a heart of stone that is now soft. You who once were children of wrath destined for destruction. You are now brought in because God is merciful and God is loving. Your story that what used to be over here is now going in a completely different direction. Anyone who is in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians new creation. It doesn't just say he is or she is new creation. He's saying that that is part and parcel of the new creation that supersedes you, and it is cosmic in scope, where Jesus is reconciling all things 
to God the Father. That is good news. And if that doesn't change how we view relationships, and if that doesn't change how we view our work, and if that doesn't change how we view the Bible and Christ and faith, then we are missing it, period. My hope tonight, in the midst of all this nerdy stuff about Second Maccabees and frying pans and all this really crazy stuff and inaugurated eschatology, that we see the core of what we as a people believe together. When we say we believe, we believe that Jesus has died for us and he has been raised from the dead and new creation has been initiated here and now and we get to be a part of it. That's the news that we spread, and it is my hope and my passion that however you've been created and whatever gifts you have been given, you allow yourself to see it and to participate in it, knowing that Jesus has begun the good work and he will bring it to completion. And the things that we do here and now, they have significance into the age to come. So let's be ambassadors of justice. And let's care about this world that we have been given. And let's create good art. And let's tell the good story of a savior who became one of us, who took our very worst, nailed it to the cross and said, you can't get rid of me that quick. Who broke free from the chains of death and arose out of the tomb and said, new creation has begun here and now. And when you see it, and when you understand it, you get to participate in it.